This is Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning and welcome to Talk Back Gardening. Good morning, John. Good morning, Deb. You're looking nice and refreshed after your little uh, disappearance for a couple of weeks. I had a lovely time, thank you. Southern Victoria. In fact, interestingly in the news, Squeaky Beach on Wilson's Promontory has been named as one of Australia's great beaches and I was down that neck of the woods. Absolutely stunning. Oh, how wonderful. I have fond memories of that beach many, many, many years ago. It is. It's a beautiful part of the world. So, yes, thank you. I'm feeling very revived. And I understand that while I was away, Adelaide had quite a lot of mild temperatures, but a lot of humidity. And a heat spike of 40 degrees, our first and only for the season. The question is, is that it for, for summer? Could it be we've had our hot weather for summer? <laughs> and I think there's a lot of concern from a gardening point of view that, uh, OK, so uh, the seasons are running late and could it be that, that the heat waves that we normally have in January and February are going to come and they're going to come late? And just as the tomatoes and the uh, fruit crops are looking good, we get a spike of heat and, and that upsets things and uh, really takes some of the fizz out of the pleasure of growing those kind of fruit and veg. Well, we have... Somebody who can tell us exactly what's, well, not exactly, but uh, a pretty good uh, summarisation of uh, what's going to happen in terms of uh, weather. And that's, of course, Darren Ray, independent climatologist here in South Australia, takes a look at the next three months from a home gardening point of view, and he'll certainly... Uh, comment on the tropical systems that are going down the east coast and the other thing of course that he mentioned last uh, month was uh, the fact that the high pressure system to the just as sits south of uh, uh, the continent and and across south australia and it's been bringing southeasterly winds and those southeasterly winds are nice and mild Mm. we'll have more please but darren will say whether that's possible very very shortly of course later in the program we're going to take a look at eremophilus they're right at the top of the list in terms of listener feedback. Uh, people say, we love aeromophilas. Can we have more information, please? And so Ken Warns, uh, probably our foremost authority on aeromophilas here in South Australia, will be our guest. Take a look at why they're so good. And in particular, uh, many people are starting to think about having a verge, a, a, a garden out in, in the front of their, their house as a verge. How adaptable and how good are aeromophilas as a verge plant? Oh, really interesting. So stay tuned for that later in the program. And as always, John's here. He's ready to answer your gardening questions. You've got the expert. You can talk to him right now. The phone number is 1300 The quicker you call in, the quicker you will get you to air. 1300 is the phone line to speak to John. John, you like to talk to people about their problems because sometimes it takes a few questions to get to the nub of the issue, doesn't it's it? It's the extra information that uh, people give when they're coming in with their questions and the important thing I think well, the listeners the people who are listening to that person explain their problem they want to know is that the kind of problem that they have yeah. can they recognise those symptoms or uh, they're saying but ask about this one as well yeah. and so uh, I think that's half the fun of Talkback Gardening is, is the interaction between uh, me and the person with the problem and of course the listeners at home Exactly so if you've got a problem John's here to help you solve it one three hundred triple two eight nine one. but of course we love your comments on the text line and the text line number is 0467 I've got a couple of January ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away a little later in the program. Just remember John's advice is of a general nature and shouldn't be taken as personal professional advice. This is Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Great to be with you this morning. Our first caller off the bat this morning is Joan from Greneth. Good morning, Joan. Good morning, everyone. Um, John, I know that when you want to take a daisy or carnation cutting, it is best to have one that has a heel on it. Um, That is when you gently pull it from the plant so that a small strip of the stem comes with the part that you want to plant. Is it the same for propagating mint? If not, how is the best way? Secondly, what is the best time of year? Thank you. Joan, uh, did you say that you want to propagate mint? 
Yes, I do. I know they've got lots of runners, and and that generally I um, grow mine in pots. Okay. What I'd suggest is you grab a piece of mint, stick it on the ground, and run. (laughs) Um, It can be a little bit of a triffid, but in terms of being serious about your question, yeah. Look, I I loved the way you described the fact that when you're propagating uh, those soft plants, you pull a a heel off, and you've got a little heel on on the cutting, and that is very, very effective. With mint, you really don't need too much uh, encouragement. Um, Ideally, if you can just grab a piece of the root system, if you've got a piece of uh, mint, a clump of mint, just uh, get a a spade or something like that and and just cut off a, a section of the root system, uh, the cut section will repair itself very, very quickly. And then take what I'd say, rather than heel, little pieces of heel, you take little pieces of root. And uh, the roots, uh, if you've got a bit of a root attached to sort of uh, the, the, the branch that's uh, growing from the root, you'll find that that will strike very, very, very quickly. Otherwise, if you can, uh, uh, if you've got a, a nice mint plant and it's got little side branches, again, just pulling it away so that it comes with the heel uh, that's come out of the main stem, and, and and you've got that little heel there, just trim it up, put it into coarse washed sand or probably just propagating mix and I think you'll have no problems at all. Okay. So um wh- what is propagating mix? I don't I mean I'm no problem soil. <laughs> propagating you know, mix you can actually buy a, a little bag of, of a propagating mix. Maybe it's got a, a liter or maybe 5 liters of mix and all that is is just a coarse washed material. It probably has got coarse washed sand in it. It's probably got a little bit of pine bark in it. A very small shredded uh, pine bark and it may even have a little bit of peat moss in it Um, stay tuned in about two weeks time joan we're going to be talking to uh, matt coulter who's uh, the propagator at the adelaide botanic gardens and matt of course will say look the best thing you can do is buy a little bag of perlite and if you want to get your cuttings and make sure your cuttings grow, uh, an eight, a percent of 80% mix of perlite and maybe 10% of cocoa peat is brilliant. I actually use 90% perlite at this time of the year, and uh, the amount of success I have, in fact, I get very, very upset if I don't have 100% <laughs> simply because of that mixture that uh, Matt put me onto. And I would suggest if you're a keen propagator, invest in a bag of perlite. It's just inert material. It's just natural rock being crossed up and heated. Uh, but it gives you the aeration that you need when you're make propagating plants. And invariably, when people are propagating and putting the cuttings into materials, it's too wet and there's not enough air there and perlite overcomes that problem. But more from that in two weeks' time, Joan. Thanks, Joan. Oh, Joan's gone. Thank you, Joan. Lovely question because I miss my mint, John. I had loads of mint under my roses and uh, unfortunately they were sprayed unknowingly by someone as weeds and gone and I have tried to grow mint three or four times since without success so okay, I well, understand what I, Joan's question is about there. I, I would strongly suggest Deb, anybody that wants to grow mint grow it in a container not in the ground because it can become quite feral. Mm, interesting question thank you Joan. Uh, call in now if you'd like to speak to John on 1300 891. Let's speak to Michael in McGill. Good morning Michael. Morning um my question is very simple, hopefully. I have a lily-pilly hedge, about eight years old, growing vigorous, both height and, and width. Um, I want, and it's, I want to trim it up a bit. How vigorous should I be at this time of the year? Well, I would suggest that you do it in two operations. Now's a good time just to trim it lightly. And if you do that, it'll help it send out um, more smaller side branches very very quickly and then probably uh, in maybe March would be the time to cut it back quite hard if you want to reshape it don't do it now we could I mean we're going to get some pretty warm temperatures this weekend uh, 35 and, and beyond and there could be a few more days like that so if you cut back very very hard um, you'll uh, th- there's a potential that you get sunburn on the branch although a lily pilly will recover from that pretty quickly but it, it would be much better just to trim it up uh, stimulate it into send out more side branches and then when you do cut it back harder in uh, March 
I would suggest that uh, because you've got all these little side branches, it'll recover very, very quickly and it will go back to looking like a hedge rather than something that's uh, long and lanky. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for the call, Michael. Appreciate that. Deb Tribe and John Lamb with you, Talk Back Gardening. The number is 1300 991. Um, love to hear your calls. And thank you to this texter that says, I noticed recently, late January, that some jonquil bulbs have already started to shoot, which is the earliest that I can remember. <laughs> oh, go on. Wow. That's, that's a little bit too early. Yeah. It's fascinating, though. The, the number of plants which normally flower probably in autumn are flowering now and I'm look I've been given the name of somebody who might be able to come onto the program and explain what's going on. Great, so stay tuned for that one as well. Grant is in Lockleys. Now you've got six cycads, Grant. What's happening? Well, I've got one, thanks. Uh, yeah, John, it's we've we've got two cycads. We shifted from the Riverland to, to Adelaide. They were healthy when we come down. They're forty years old. One's recovered nicely but the other one uh, it's it's trying to put on promote new growth uh, about one third of the the new growth is grown into a leaf or a plant but the uh, they're so slow and and the end of the leaves have gone brown now right they are growing in a container i would presume yeah they're in big pots uh, john they're at, they were exposed to the sun when we shifted down. We uh, we set the garden up more now. No, I, I have uh, got an umbrella over this one because I thought I was, initially I thought I was getting sunburned. No, well that's good. I was going to suggest that uh, when you've relocated them, they've got to get used to a new position. Um, and if they've been growing in the full sun, uh, even though you're moving them, it's probably best to give them a shade. Ideally, if you give them sort of where they get the morning sun and maybe protection from the, the heat uh, from that midday and, and mid-afternoon, it would be a good thing. But you, you mentioned the fact that uh, the uh, one of the branches or one of the plants, uh, you're getting the tips are going a little bit black. That, to me, suggests that that's an overwatering problem. Cycads, if you uh, have got them, and if you forget that they're down the side of the house, and many people, they've got their cycad plant, and think, oh, goodness, it's it's six weeks since I've watered the cycad. You go around there, and the cycad's blooming. It's looking good. Uh, and that sort of says something. Um, and, of course, if you are thinking you're starting to feel guilty, I've moved you, I better look after you, I better give you water, I'll give you more water give you more water <laughs> of course okay. that's not what yeah. it wants uh, so i would be suggesting that you let the uh, uh, because it's a little bit uh, stressed at the moment uh, and if probably you have uh, overwatered and maybe the tips of the root system uh, uh, are damaged and they need to recover so when i say back off with the water don't do it too quickly wait until the top two at least top two maybe three centimeters of soil is is dry then water it uh, and when you do water it give it a seaweed uh, material but don't okay. give it any fertilizer no no the it is i have uh removed it from the pot and checked the roots and uh, there was a little bit of root rot showing up so i treated the and repotted it in new soil and i'm getting new growth all right. from little sprouts okay well it sounds like it's on its way and and i think you understand what's going on with the plant and you can look after it um if it was mine i would move it somewhere where it's in complete shade it's when you get sun shining on the leaves or the leaf structure uh, that uh, it sucks out the moisture and the plant can't grow new roots and and keep itself cool at the same time if you put it somewhere where it's in good strong light but no direct sun, no you'll direct. find it'll recover much quicker. Mm. And do you think there's any value in misting with the when you do water them, misting the leaves? That's how we were watering them. 
uh, look, uh, if it was a, a fuchsia or a gardenia or something like that, I would say definitely. But I think a cycad is probably able to look after itself. Um, if you can't put it in uh, out of the sun, well, certainly giving it a mist or misting it down uh, uh, might help a little bit. But uh, it's more, far more important to get uh, the mixture around the root system right. Mm. And air, as well as water, will be the two factors that will allow it to recover. Sounds like a special plant to Grant. He's on it, so that's fantastic. Good luck with it, Grant. Thank you very much. We are Talk Back Gardening. John Lamb and Deb Tribe this morning. The number to call is 1300 222 891. We'll be speaking to Lillian and Jenny next, and of course we're catching up with our climatologist, Darren Ray, very shortly. This is Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Our number one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Lillian from Bedford Park has called that. Now, Lillian, you've got a problem with your formium. Is that correct? Yes, I do. Yes, I have put those. Good morning to you both. I have put them in pots, and they're against the fence by the pool. Somebody had suggested it. One of your callers had suggested it when I called in a few months ago. Growing great. Love them. However, the tips have started to go brown. Any suggestions? Am I overwatering or underwatering? When you say formium, what's it look like? Yes, well, I'm not familiar it's with it. Well, they are. Um, Wait, is this a shrub or a? Uh, it's it's like it's it's uh, fine leaves. Um, it's spelled P H O. Oh, P H. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Have I pronounced it wrong? Probably. Oh no, no, that's right. No, it's just I put an F and a P H. <laughs> uh, P H. Yeah, okay. They're right. dark delights. They're called. Yeah. Okay. So how how big is it and wide is it? Uh, it's about a meter high, yeah. like strap leaves, like grass leaves, yes. but you know leaves. Um, and I put those in there a dark colour, dark sort of brown, growing beautifully. And I put some perlite in the soil, in the pots. However, I'm finding that the edges of the, the tips of the leaves are starting to go brown. All right. Well, lighter brown. Again, uh, as it was with Grant, I think you've got an overwatering problem. Uh, when you yeah. say you put uh, perlite, did you put the perlite on the sur- surface like a mulch? Was that correct? I put it in the, with the, in with the uh, ground. Right. In with the potting mix. So, oh, okay. So when you repotted it, uh, you had extra per- perlite in it. Yes. Okay. Well, that yes. should have given you, should have improved your drainage considerably. Uh, just uh, uh, make sure that the, the drainage hole is open, and that's not a problem. And if that isn't a problem, then you need to look very much at how you're watering, madam. <laughs> yes, I think it's probably overwatering from yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, it, it's, the prob- it's the Achilles heel. If you think about it, very few plants, particularly house plants, die through lack of water simply because the plant, the leaves wilt and say, hey, I need some water, please. <laughs> Whereas, at the other hand, if you're overwatering, that's going on that's affecting the root system and the plant can't tell you hey please back off on the water i don't need any more what i need is air air is just as important and sometimes more important in the root system and it's not just the plant that needs the air think of all the little microbes thousands millions of little microbes and they need air to survive so uh, anybody that uh, likes to water their plants wait until the tops uh, tops at least centimetre for most plants, maybe with a, uh, a maidenhair fern, you mightn't wait that long, but uh, wait till the topsoil dries out. And if you've got plants in a pot and the pot is relatively small, lift up the, pat, the pot once you've watered it and you'll feel, oh yes, that feels heavy. And then if you think it needs watering, lift it up and it still feels heavy, put it back and wait until when you Lovely. pick it up, you think, oh, it's very light. Then if you... The, pop that container in a big bucket of water and then you'll watch all the little bubbles, air bubbles coming out of the root system and that's being replaced with water. Now bear in mind then you've got almost 100% water in your potting mix. It's got to drain and the air's got to get back in before the plant is happy. So, there we are. Thank you very much, John. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for the call, Lillian. Lovely to hear from you. Hope it goes well. Jenny is in Black Forest. Now, Jenny, You've got uh, kikuyu grass coming up in your raised garden bed. Oh, no. Oh, yes, definitely. Oh, no, John. Um, 
the uh, humid weather has really sent it going skyrocketing up through uh, the garden bed. It's coming from a neighbour, neighbour's fence. We're hard up against it, but we have a backing board. And it's not coming over the top. It's literally coming from 750, um, you know, millimetres up. Yes. But it's coming up through near my roses. And I've got some uh, climbing roses there. And I've been spraying with the, the usual culprits that work quite well when that comes through the surface. But I've already had a little bit of a problem with a bit of dieback on one side of the rose. So I'm thinking I'm going to need to tackle it from the fence line down below, um, you know, the 750mm height of the raised garden, yes. so right down near the base. But I'm worried if I put something really strong there, is my rose going to be affected? Jenny, how do you get on with well with a neighbour? Um, well, reasonably, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, be polite to your neighbour and say, listen, you've got a cooch grass growing along the border and it's invading my property, and it really is uh, causing problems to the roses. And uh, if what is needed is if you can, and you can might be you can offer yourself to say, can I come in with my sprayer with glyphosate, that chemical you didn't want to mention, but I yeah. presume that's what you're using, because that's yeah. that I won't say the only thing that's effective against kikuyu, but it certainly is. And all you need to do is put a, a, a spray along the the, the fence on the on the neighbor's side and if you spray that with glyphosate you'll find that it'll probably take if it's all congested it'll take maybe a couple of months before it completely dies but that will right. get rid of the problem from your point of view then uh, i'd suggest any cuckoo that's left is on your side and you need to treat that and don't yeah. spray wipe Get the material and you get to wear some gloves and, and get a sponge and, and where you can see the uh, kikuyu stems, all you need to do is, is get the glyphosate into the sponge and wipe it onto what you can see of the kikuyu and you'll find that is very effective. You don't have to dig it up. You'll find that if it's got a root system, the chemical will go back into the root system and it might keep on reappearing over the next couple of months every time you see it coming up let it grow probably 10 or 15 centimeters so you've got something to wipe uh, wipe it with your glyphosate you've got rid of the problem and you've got rid of that thing from next doors but if you if the next door neighbor won't let you go in or doesn't want to uh, the best thing you can do is uh, get the soil away from the, your fence line and again, spray along there. Mm -hmm. So if there's kaikuyu on their side, <laughs> uh, it's going to kill what's on the neighbour's side. Mm -hmm. So tell the neighbour, I'm going to spray your kaikuyu on my side so it might affect your side, but uh, so be it. And then uh, you'll also find if you do that, the sorry, you're trying to say something? Well, I don't think the neighbour would mind too much if um, some of the, the you know, grass was... Uh, damaged on his side. My main concern is if the the, the beginning of the kaikuyu is 750ml below the um, like my my rose roots aren't going to go down that far that are going to be affected. Now listen, the, the, the only time when glyphosate will affect roses is if you spray the rose, the rose bush itself or actually uh, you, you spray it onto the roots. Now, if you've got sandy soil and you, you drench the soil with glyphosate, then there's a likelihood that because it's sandy, the glyphosate can actually move down into the root system. But in clay soil, that won't happen. And so long as you don't get the chemical onto the spray, um, it's not going to affect your roses. It shouldn't affect your roses. Actual, uh, yeah, uh, exposed part of my rose. Right. Okay, yep. that's lovely. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Right Thank you, Jenny, for the call. Hope it goes well. one three hundred triple two eight nine one is the phone number to call to speak directly to John. Mario has done that from Fulham Gardens. Mario, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I've got a row of dwarf beans that are about four to five inches high, and we've had a few of them just seem to wilt, cool over, because it's, the stem has thinned out so thin just below the surface of the soil. And my wife thinks it might be something coming up and eating it from underneath the ground, but I suspect it just may be too much water. I'm just uh, wondering what you may think. 
quite possibly. Um, if the, you look at the stem close to the ground and see whether it's been chewed, um, if it's been chewed at all and it's thin because part of the stem has been actually munched away by a critter, then obviously you've got uh, probably a caterpillar and there are a large number of, uh, well not a large, but there are a number of, of uh, cutworms and things like that that live in the soil and they do like uh, vegetables, particularly peas and beans. Um, so uh, take a look and see whether it's a critter and if it's not, if it hasn't been munched up, then if it's thin, and particularly around the base, that's a fungal disease, and it's probably uh, colorot. And, and, and that, that, uh, it, it, it just weakens the plant, and eventually it'll kill the plant, and there's not enough sap getting up into the top of the bean, and so it wilts and then it dies. Um, and that usually is associated with overwatering, and in particular, if you've got mulch very, very close to the stems of the plants, and what happens, you water and the mulch stays wet for some time. That causes humid conditions around the base of the plant and that allows that fungal disease to be able to become active and destroy the stem. Okay, thanks for that. Okay. <laughs> thanks, Mario. I hope that your beans don't continue to die. Deb Tribe and John Lamb with you talk back gardening. Darren Ray is next with his seasonal outlook for gardeners. And John, on the issue of propagating mint, Anne from Locke says, um, pull off the lower leaves and pop the stem into a glass of water in the windowsill so the leaves are not immersed in the water. Change the water every maybe four to five days. You can watch the roots grow. Then you can pot it out when it's well rooted. Wow. Well done, yes, that's a wonderful suggestion and when we're talking to Matt I'll do a little bit of boasting because that's how I propagate a lot of my uh, coleus and plectranthus and soft uh, uh, materials and uh, I have a, a special little system I've developed and I won't talk about it now. Oh, it we'll, have to, we'll have to wait until two, two weeks. Thanks Anne for that, appreciate it. But yeah, yeah, that's a good suggestion and it's surprising the number of plants that will strike from water at the moment and it just was suggested just take the tip take the lower leaves off and you can buy a little plastic in a little plastic pic picnic mugs or glasses yeah they're not that much glasses they're plastic uh, and they're ideal size for popping in your cuttings but uh, there's more to it than that and more in two weeks time okay so wait for matt coulter on that one in a couple of weeks but you don't have to wait long for darren ray our independent climatologist he is going to be joining us very soon i understand he's not answering his phone at the moment so we're trying to track him down <laughs> so darren if you're listening give us a call and if you would like it to talk to john one three hundred triple two eight nine one is the number our text line zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one this is Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. We're going to be talking to our independent climatologist, Darren Ray, as soon as we can track him down. Um, but Linda says, an interesting aspect of the crazy weather we've been having, I have several old pepper trees on my place and I currently have lots of pepper tree seedlings emerging. I've never seen it before. Pepper trees. Well, why not? I mean, they're probably a kind of a plant that have a very, very hard seed and that you need a lot of moisture uh, and constant moisture over a period of time before the hardness of the outside of the, the seed breaks down and once that happens, up come the seedlings. And I would not be at all surprised if there are other plants, uh, particularly our native plants, that have that inbuilt material uh, that hardens up the outside of the seed and, and so a little shower, they won't germinate. But if you think about it, December, we had 50 or 60 millimetres. We've had 130 millimetres here in Adelaide in the last two months. Uh, and uh, or looking at, at soil, our soil profile, our soil profile is absolutely full of moisture going down to about 30 uh, centimetres. So the tree n knows that or the seeds have, have picked mm. that up or whatever's going on within the, in, the, in the soil, uh, it, there's enough moisture to soften the seed and up come uh, the little seedlings and and uh, there, well, I think there'll be quite a lot of those kind of uh, happenings. Stories, yeah, and events happening in people's gardens. Nancy is in West Lakes. Nancy, your uh, lily has got some old leaves and new growth there. Good morning. 
Good morning, Deb and John. Yes, that's correct. Um, I'm not sure if I should do something about it. So, what kind of plant are we talking about? Um, it's a very attractive, large red lily. Uh, it has, yeah, the flowers are red? Yes. Okay. Yes, and correct. are they there all the time, 12 months of the no, year? No, no. Only in about March. Right, and, and flowers round about now? Are the flowers normally happen in hot, hot weather? Yeah, okay. in March. They're just coming up with the fresh leaves prior to the flower itself. Okay, so I think that's uh, quite natural for that particular bulb. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be at all worried about it. There are a number of the uh, uh, heat-thriving uh, uh, bulbs that uh, some of them they actually send up the flowers first and then uh, after oh, the yeah. flowers have sort of had their little uh, performance, up come the leaves. But uh, you'll, you'll drive around some of the old properties and you'll find these old uh, bulbs, uh, they've been neglected for years, but they still send up their red flowers <laughs> and yes. away they go. Thank you. Um, this particular one sent the leaves up first and then the flower and I think in the past I have cut off the old leaves I'm not sure Oh, okay. Well, you could do no. that, but I mean, they need the leaves. What happens is the leaves are needed for to produce uh, energy for next year's flowers. So uh, I would be uh, saying, leave the leaves alone. They will die down naturally once uh, the hot hot weather is gone, or whatever is the, uh, the system, uh, the the weather uh, type of of weather that uh, will allow it to sort of continue its normal growth cycle. Right, thank you. I'll leave it alone then. And <laughs> just wait for the new blooms. Thank best, you. Best sort of advice you can get, Nancy. Do nothing. Brilliant. <laughs> Thanks very much for calling in. Uh, Elston is in Gawler East. Now, is this the Elston that loves country music? That's the one. Oh. And don't forget, it's getting hot. You better camel up. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, what's happening to your capsicums, Elston? My capsicums are growing to about... Inch, inch and a half in diameter, and then I'll get a brown spot outside, and all of a sudden, before they get to colour, there's a hole bearing. So I think there's a parasite. I don't know if it's coming in the flower or what. So the flowers, oh, sorry, the, the, the capsicum, and it's a normal uh, capsicum that sort of grows to a standard type a size that you'd yeah, buy from the garden. Yeah, it's a Californian one. All right. And is it the... Uh, uh, not the stem end, but the other end that's going rotten? Both both bits and pieces, both sides, you know. It can be on one side, can be near the stem. So it it, look, it looks it like a, a rot. You've got a, a little circle with a, a just, it's going rotten and it goes very, very soft on the skin. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, there's two things that affect the capsicums. One is blossom end rot, and that is at the blossom end or the, the end furthest away from the stem. And that's a calcium deficiency, the same thing that happens with tomatoes. And uh, the plant is, uh, is just running short of calcium at a particular stage of the maturity of that particular fruit. Uh, I think it's more, you've got this, this, what I'd call a, a, not a brown rot, but it's one of the fungal rots and uh, uh, people that have got nectarines following the very, very humid weather, if they were, nectarines were ripening then, brown rot or botrytis was a, a major issue uh, for uh, them. And if you've got it on your capsicums and you, they're there, there's nothing that I am aware of that you can spray that is registered for the control of uh, brown rot or spot rot on capsicums. You can try different kind of fungicides. They're not registered, so it's on your head. Um, probably uh, when if it's an ongoing problem and you've got new capsicums and they're developing, um, I would spray the plants with maybe wettable sulphur. Um, if you spray the plants which are already affected, it's not going to do much good there, but mm -hmm. you can protect the plants which are not affected. It might also be worthwhile. There's a, if you're organic, you can use ecofungicide, ecofungicide. And if you spray the plants uh, uh, that's organic and, and there's not a withholding period that I'm aware of, but check the directions, um, spray that on uh, and before a plant is affected. And, of course, the other thing, of course, <laughs> I suppose, Elston, is, is that um, it, those problems appear because of the very, very humid weather. 
So let's stay tuned to uh, Darren Ray if we can find him. <laughs> and ah, right. and, and uh, if we're going to get some more humid weather, I'd be putting on a preventative spray. If he says it's going right. to be uh, dry uh, as anything and we're not going to have any more of that uh, high humidity, um, then I would suggest that you probably uh, just walk away and let the plant look after itself. Okay. Now, while you're there... Mm-hmm. I do a bit of propagating, but I do it with my tomato plants. I only buy two tomato plants, if I'm lucky, every year. Yes. Now, when you get uh, the main trunk come up, and in between the first and second level, you get a, a, a shoot coming up. Yep. And people prune them off. Now, if you let them grow to about five inches long, and be very careful that you don't knock the small hairs around, you can put them in a glass of water, and those tomato plants... Root. Uh-huh. When they got enough, enough uh, roots on them, you can plant them out in the garden. That's and the, you save yourself more than, say, some tomato plants are worth $5 a plant. That's right. You can save yourself a lot of money. Let's hear for propagating in water. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. There, there are many. Uh, There's a little hint for somebody who wants to save yeah, themselves look, that's money lovely. In the garden. And that's what we love uh, people coming in with their suggestions. So, anybody else that's uh, propagating successfully in water, uh, send text in and we can sort of incorporate that into the, into the program in two weeks' time when we're talking to Matt. All right, thank you. Anyway, it's going to be warm, so tell everybody to camel up. Elston <laughs> said. Okay, thanks, Elston. Appreciate the call. Lovely to hear from you. Uh, Jess from McGill has got a wisteria problem. Hello, Jess. Hi, John. Um, I planted a wisteria three years ago. It really struggled. It's got kind of half the stem at the base, looked like something had eaten it, and now that shoot's died off. There's a new shoot coming out of it, and I'm a bit worried that it might be the wrong thing. When you bought it, uh, did you plant it in winter when it was bare, or did you buy it as a, a evergreen plant, or as a plant with green leaves on it? Uh, probably with the leaves on it, John. Right. And when you took it out of the container, I don't suppose you looked at the roots, and was it root-bound? Were the roots going around the root ball, or was it uh, all nice and fresh, and the little tips looking nice and uh, almost white? Mm. I don't remember. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, and I, I ask that knowing probably you haven't looked, but uh, I say that simply because when people are replanting or planting and they take the plant out of the container, before you put it in the soil, take a look at the root system. The root system is the thing that's going to determine whether the plant will be successful or not. And uh, now we come back to your particular problem, Jess. Why? Um, it's tremendously important that you improve the soil before you plant. Uh, could you tell us what kind of soil? Was it heavy clay soil or sandy soil? What, what, and what kind of preparation? Um, I might have put some seed raising mix and some Im- improving soil around it, but I might have just put it into what's already there. seems to be clay underneath here, but um, the previous owners have improved it. All right. Somewhat. And again, it's, it's not being critical of you, Jess, but uh, when people are putting a new plant in, they say, right, the plant is, uh, uh, it comes out of a 20 centimetre wide container, so I'll dig a, ho- a wi- hole 20 centimetres wide and pop it in. But you've only improved the soil for 20 centimetres. The roots have got to go out uh, a further 20 centimetres and more all around. So you need to improve, loosen the soil probably for at least a, a square metre or at least a square three-quarters of a metre of a plant and by putting in well-composted material. So I think probably there may be lack of soil preparation has started off the problem and then when you're putting the plant in, uh, we're not too sure of the state of the root system. Let's take it was okay. Uh, you're putting it in and you're saying, grow, little plant, grow. And so there you are with the water and putting it on and from your description of what you gave me, I would suggest that uh, it's, again, suffering stress, probably because the root system hasn't re-established itself and it can't re-establish itself because it's just a little bit too wet there and uh, maybe a little bit more oxygen might help. (laughs) So what to do? Um, Next time you need to water, and don't water until the topsoil is completely dry, use a seaweed material, no fertiliser, I would be mulching it with a a light mulch and I would be putting some form of shade over it so it's not getting direct sun. 
And if you do all those things, get the soil right, the moisture right, and shade, it's got a good chance of recovering. No chance of the wrong sort of graft material coming up. It will be the same that I bought, the purple one, not the white one. Oh, so you're saying that there are little suckers coming up? Yeah, yeah. it's one, one shoot's um, come up. Um, did you pay a lot of money for the uh, wisteria or just ordinary price at a garden centre? Oh, it felt like a lot. You can buy grafted wisteria. Most of the wisteria you buy from the garden centre will be taken and grown as a cutting and that being so, uh, the roots, uh, if they sucker, will b- provide the same kind of plant that you expected. Uh, whereas if, if it's grafted, you see there's a little knobbly section uh, where it comes out of the ground. Uh, that indicates it is grafted, and that could be different. But I suspect that probably you've got a cutting plant, and uh, don't blame <laughs> the plant uh, where it came from or how it was grown, I think you need to look very carefully, Jess, at the way you're growing it. (laughs) Thank you, John. Okay. Thanks for the call, Jess. Really appreciate it. Um, On the text line, we've got, um, Good morning, John. Regarding indoor plants, there seems to be a move towards calling indoor plants house plants, as per the American term for these plants. I look after a large amount of indoor plants in offices, which, of course, are not homes. Some people have asked me if these plants in the office are suitable for house plants. I've had to explain they are indoor plants and they will grow in house conditions. So perhaps we should stick to the Australian term of indoor plants, which clearly indicates plants grown in all building situations rather than the American term house plants. Okay, I'll accept that, yes. And a lot depends on your terminology, but it's so easy just to say house plant simply because it's popular uh, without uh, realising that uh, really you should be saying indoor plant. Yes, exactly. Okay, that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> we are talk back gardening here, John Lamb and Deb Tribe. The phone number, call in now to speak to John, is 1300 222891. We might try and catch up with Ken Wards on Aeromofflers in just a moment. Talk back gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill. Deb Tribe and John Lamb with you this morning. And John, I think might. And mice are a bit of a problem at the moment, is that right? Yes, and that will overcome the problem of pronunciation, won't it? It's so easy. People say, I've got a mice problem, and you're thinking it's a mites problem, and vice versa. Both are an issue. We're coming to the end of a growing season, so all the succulent material um, and uh, in the, the paddocks where the mice often live, uh, the, se- the weeds are drying off, the seeds are disappearing, and so they're coming into your garden. Just be aware. Uh, from about now on if you haven't already got mice coming into the garden you're quite likely to and you need some form of a program to uh, maybe stop the uh, the females the females will be coming in looking for feed to go back because they'll have uh, young feeding somewhere and if you can knock off the female and stop her then you stop probably a bigger problem later in the season the other one of course is the fact that uh, it, normally we have dry weather and we haven't we've had sort of wet conditions and so mites haven't been a problem but because the weather has been so dry for so long then uh, uh, mites are starting to build up and again just be aware if you have plants which are sensitive to mites like viburnum hedges and things like that start checking start looking and uh, make sure you've got something like a, a wettable sulfur for controlling uh, mite problems. Wonderful. Recently on Talk Back Gardening, John, you've been talking about heat-tolerant plants and the top of the list for listeners were eremophilas and Ken Warns knows just about everything there is to know about eremophilas. Yes, good morning, Ken. Welcome to Talk Back Gardening. <laughs> good morning, John and Deb and listeners. Yeah, everything to know about eremophilas. No, we've scratched the surface. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can recall, must be over 30 years ago, visiting your property and you were looking at uh, a lovely trial garden and you and another member of the uh, Native Plant Society, uh, uh, Margaret Lee, have uh, a co members of the eremophila study group and got a wonderful material that's built up over 30 or 40 years when did you start your 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 growing your eremophilas 1961 i planted the first one and it is still growing well how wonderful Mm. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you were planting species, and of course, along come the hybrids. We'll come to that very, very shortly. Yep. Why is it? that eremophilas are so suitable for South Australian gardens, particularly here in Adelaide and, and, and surrounds? Well, I guess it's the vegetative version of Darwinism. They have evolved in hot, dry conditions. Um, the majority of them would occur in less than 12 inches of natural rainfall. The majority of them would probably occur in temperatures that would easily reach 40 degrees in the middle of summer and that's just simply evolution over a long long period of time that's brilliant so there's two factors there they are used to very dry conditions and also they're very tolerant of sun and we may be in a situation where we get more sun more often but um, there are many different species of macula of uh, aromophilus can uh, probably let's just focus on one probably the most popular and widely grown as a garden plant it would be Eremophila maculata. Just a brief description uh, of those that are not too sure what a, 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 an Eremophila maculata looks like. Okay, well, basically they'd be rounded shrubs. They can vary from not much more than a foot high to about eight feet high because they grow over wide regions of inland Australia, but always where there's a watercourse or a floodplain or something like that. So in South Australia, we'll find them on the, the floodplains of the River Murray. A uh, good population just south of Morgan on the Yudunda Road. Um, so right through to central Queensland and right through to uh, the Indian Ocean in Western Australia. The flower is tubular, basically red, often spotted, hence the name maculata, um, but occasionally yellows, oranges, pinks. Uh, there's a, a stunning range of, of colours there. The, the common one it would grow to about a metre high and two metres across. Uh, that's maximum size and um, responds to pruning which we should do management of them is a major factor which we're still trying to get a handle of but this, this one and it's very attractive to the honey eater type birds as well so and, uh, uh, it's a good good all-round plant that's right and mm. with that last little point that people are uh, think uh, saying look i not only want something to look at something that will attract uh, the uh, the native plants back in uh, native uh, critters into our garden and eremophilus are probably high on the list in terms of their effectiveness well those with that bird type pollinated flower so they've always got red orange yellow or green there's some are bright green which are the colors in the bird spectrum they're all designed for bird pollination they all produce copious quantities of nectar and we've actually had various species of honey eaters move into that plantation that you were talking about and have now made it their home and you've they are not natural to the area. You've tried many different species and also uh, you have a large number of hybrids which are a variation of the species. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Don't get me started on hybrids. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose the question is uh, the hybrids, they have come into the garden since it's lovely labels. Are they, uh, as a general rule, are the hybrids as, as, as versatile uh, as probably probably the original species? Um, it's a question with many answers. <laughs> We're getting more, more and more hybrids coming in. We've logged nearly 200 different ones. Uh, that's not scientific. That is just calculated observation. Uh, but they, when we get seedlings come up, we grow them, we put them out, and we would prefer to look at them for up to five years and then select which ones we think are worth trying to, to uh, go further in Sorry. cultivation. Yeah, so that's we've got this long trial period where, of course, the nursery people just want to get in and grab something new and put it on the market. So people so, want to grow a, a, an Eremophila, and probably they'll choose a Maculata or a, maybe one of the lovely hybrids, but the important thing is looking after it. And, okay, you've indicated they are very tolerant of dry conditions. Could you just comment on watering the average Eremophila in the average garden? Well, they're tolerant of dry conditions once established. They're right. like any plant. They will respond to better conditions. That's, you see, in the inland, they have to be able to make use of the occasional decaying monsoon or big rain. So what's happening up in western Queensland at the moment? Ten-year drought and then three months of continuous rain. Some of the aromophers will respond to that. We do need to, to keep learning to prune them, and the books always say prune after flowering which is easier said than done. Because <laughs> They're always in flower. Months of the year, yes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and every pruning prompts another a batch of flowers. So, uh, But I think we have to discipline ourselves to, to reduce the size, and otherwise we think they're short-lived. It's like anything. We prune our roses, we prune our fruit trees, we should prune our aromophilas. 
up to about a third off at, at the right time of year. Ken Warns is a South Australian authority on Eremophilus. Ken, on the text line 0467 922891, Paul at Power Hills says, can you give tips on propagating the cuttings? He says, I have 13 different ones in my small garden and want to spread the love to family and friends. Okay, well, again, this is experience over the years. Um, generally, tip cuttings or the first cutting below the tip. So a species such as maculata, if you take a three or four inch tip cutting off it, strip the bottom half of the leaves off, put that into your propagating mix, uh, keep it covered, you should have plants within three months. If you get one like Eremophila glabra, you probably want the stem below that tip. So you go down to where there's side shoots coming off, you take the piece below that, that's a semi-hardened tip and that will strike much better than a tip. So. Um, that's, but in general terms, it's the tip cutting. Some you can strip the leaves off. Others, such as subflocosa, you will have to cut each individual leaf off, and that's tedious. But if you try to strip the leaves, it'll tear the bark. So um, warm times a year, perhaps not midsummer, but uh, like we're going to get the next couple of days. But from uh, mid-February on through to end of April, and then it's probably better to knock it off and start again in September. Ken, uh, because they don't like the really cold conditions. Eremophilus, I think, are very much on uh, many gardeners' minds, and I wanted to talk to you about using Eremophilus uh, as a verge plant in the front of people's gardens uh, where it's pretty hostile. That's a topic for another session, I reckon. But uh, I would just very, very quickly, where can people see uh, Eremophilus growing? Right, well, there is an Eremophilus demonstration garden in the Botanic Gardens on the east end, we, our study group is in the uh, business of revamping that because we planted it, uh, it got overgrown and then of course they don't like being overgrown, it went into decline and uh, the Australian Plant Society group at York, Northern York and Kadena are propagating a big range of plants and that garden is being revamped. Uh, the arid lands of course at Port Augusta, it is the logical home for them that's where the original ones were collected in fact emily at port augusta has just texted in saying that's where you've got to see them so many beautiful species from ground covers to trees and everything in between absolutely the one problem they've got at port augusta in the arid lands is frost uh, and that that dictates which ones can be grown and it's a factor in nature too it's something we've observed over the years but well ken thank you so much for that fantastic information <laughs> we'll get you on again uh, to talk about verge plants as eremophilas uh, are very good for that thank you ken ken warns talk back gardening line is 1300 222 891 we're going to catch up with darren ray and we are going to talk about his seasonal outlook for gardeners Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning and welcome to Talk Back Gardening, especially if you're just joining us from around our beautiful state and in Broken Hill. I hope you're having a relaxing and enjoyable Saturday morning. I've got a couple of January ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away this half hour. And of course, John, we're going to be speaking to Darren Ray with his seasonal outlook for gardeners. What lies ahead in the next three months? A little mini heat wave is coming our way this weekend, just for two days, but uh, it could be quite warm. And gardeners are wondering what's going to happen through the rest of February and into autumn. Are we going to get heat waves that we would normally get earlier in summer, or are they just going to fade away? The person that's going to tell us all about that is Darren Ray, independent climatologist here in South Australia, and we say good morning to you, Darren Ray. Yeah, good morning, John. Good morning, Deb. Um, and just just apologies in terms of I had something, something sent on my phone that... Um, mucked me up a bit this morning so we were supposed to be talking a bit earlier but my apologies um not a problem so let's, here we are now thankfully <laughs> yeah, let, yeah let's take a look at what we're about to receive now last month you highlighted uh, the fact that the waters to the north of australia were pretty warm and that resulted in some pretty tropical systems down the east coast and we also got our share coming over south australia the other feature you you were talking about was significant was the high pressure system uh, to the south and that resulted in and south Southeasterly winds coming across and keeping our weather mild. Could we start this morning's discussion by just an update on those two issues? Yeah, so um, really the major, two major things that have been driving these unusually wet and um, conditions across Australia generally 
um, but also these mild temperatures that um, South Australia's been sorry Adelaide's been experiencing. And um, I was just uh, just to say, so we we cracked one day of forty during January. Um, uh, and we've had one or two more earlier in uh, earlier in summer, but I was just looking at uh, Udna data as a contrast, and they had, t they had ten days in a row above forty um, in January, and eighteen days um, in the month, and they, they had a maximum of forty eight point three. Well, we've been sitting in temperatures of you know twenty six, twenty eight, twenty nine, and occasionally getting up into the thirties, low thirties, like we're seeing at the moment. So. Um, Basically, what's been going on? We've been seeing stronger than average um, high-pressure systems sitting southwest of WA um, and out east of New Zealand, and that's a pattern which is um, associated with a variability called the Southern Annual Mode. So, um, something that it's a measure of what's going on with the mid-latitude weather systems um, around the Southern Hemisphere, and so it's been unusually positive. So, normally in El Nino, you'd expect to be negative. That tends to drag the more, drag the heat down more from the interior. Um, now there's an interesting connection with ozone levels in the stratosphere, so I won't go into that in too much detail, but that um, SAM, SAM is impacted by ozone levels and so it's another influence on human from human activity on the climate system that we see. Um, and it's an interesting local wink, wink, uh, sort of, you know, wrinkle in the, in the weather patterns and that it actually does help keep southern, and, southern Australia a bit milder, um, but also drags moisture down from the tropics. So those warm ocean temperatures, the uh, Indian Ocean influence that we had through spring, um, which contributed to the hot and dry conditions, um, so cooler ocean temperatures to northwest, that ended in November and switched around and it's warmed up. And so we've got that moisture, potential moisture feed, we've got the positive sand and we've seen a bit of rainfall come through um, uh, through January, so it was um, so wet uh, in that sort of, particularly in that sort of third week of January. Um, but it's actually it's actually switched around a little bit, John. So we're into a, something a little bit different right at the moment. Okay. Well, there's uh, the, the the major factors which are going to influence us. What's happening in the Pacific, the Indian Ocean, and that the high pressure system. From a gardening point of view, can we get down to the gardeners, Darren, and say, righto? The big thing is gardens are looking good. The crops are looking good, particularly the tomato plants. The big concern is that we're going to get a sudden burst of hot weather, either through late February or even in March. What's the likelihood of heat wave conditions or heat spike conditions? Yeah, so it's, um, I, mean, the, I mean, the news is, is, is essentially good. Um, so what I'm seeing in the modelling and, and it, both in the short term, next couple of weeks, um, it's looking like... Um, we're going to see look just lots more of the same that we've had. Um, so uh, just lots of lots of sort of high twenty high twenties days, getting up into the low thirties, like we're seeing today, and then occasional dips into uh, sorry low thirties, and then occasional dips into the high thirties, like we'll see tomorrow. So um, it's it, lots of southeasterlies. Uh, so for people in the in living in the foothills, you've probably been whacked by gully winds um, blowing things over in your garden. Um, so yeah, just um, I'm not not seeing anything particularly extreme, which is well, great. You mentioned more of the same, and I think people are saying, "Oh, that's good." Um, I, I can recall it was 1922. I think we we're having mild conditions, very similar to this. Uh, but and it was beaut, except that uh, in March we had a, a heat spike, and we got temperatures up close to the 40s, and that spoiled uh, a lot of uh, crops. Is, uh, can you see uh, a temperature up near the 40s in 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 March? Um, look, there's certainly a possibility of, of days of a day getting up into the you know, sort of high 30s and potentially even cracking a 40. Um, again, there's, a, there's certainly potential for a day there. So I think we'll see. We're, so we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of low pressure systems making their way across over, over southern Australia in the last in the next few weeks, and you'll see some days that spike up a bit. But um, the uh, you don't tend to get that sort of prolonged periods of heat in this positive SAM um, influence, though it is starting to weaken a bit. So we are still a little bit on this sort of knife edge. There's a lot of heat in the interior, um, but I'm just not seeing. I'm just not seeing that sort of pattern where things um, uh, stall and sit 
sit there dragging heat from okay. the interior. Okay, so forewarned is forearmed, and even though you're suggesting no major heat waves, uh, there are potentials for a little short heat spike, so don't put the sh- shade cloth away quite yeah. yet. Uh, let's drill down now to, uh, I suppose, February. And can we sort of go through uh, February, March and April in terms of, of temperature <coughs> and, and, uh, as, a, as a bunch, and then we'll come back to rainfall as a bunch rather than doing each, each month. So uh, in terms of uh, uh, temperatures, what do you see in terms of uh, the rest of February and, and, and going into March and April. Yeah, so it, it so it looks um, you know we get this pattern at the moment where we're warm on the weekend and then it gets milder, a bit milder during the week, so more into the sort of mid 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 high twenties, um, and that pattern looks like it's just going to repeat over the next few weeks. So um, similar sort of thing with a mildish week, it looks looking like it'll warm up again for next weekend. So another pleasant weekend. Um, more southeasterlies um, kicking away, so clear conditions, not a lot of rain around, um, and then it looks like it looks like they get milder, off, milder again. Um, so we probably get a, a change around um, the 20th, um, which could be a bit more substantial. And um, so just this pattern, and looks very pleasant um, gardening weather through right through February. Um, so a bit of a change the weekend. The models are suggesting a bit of a change the weekend after that, um, during the weekend. So um, it could be a bit hot on the Saturday. Um, this is stretching the model forecasting abilities a bit, but it does look like this sort we're of looking at fe- towards the end of February. You're saying that a yeah, weekend there yeah, could be a bit hot. Yeah, so it's around that 20th, um, yeah, 20th of February, that weekend in there somewhere. Okay, righto. Um, and then beyond February and into March in terms of temperatures. Um, so it's looking same sort of thing into first half of March, um, similar sort of temperatures, and then things start getting quite a bit milder. So the likelihood of, um, you know, and so the whatever likelihood we have of heatwave activity looks like it decreases pretty significantly from mid March onwards. Oh, that sounds good mm. from a gardening point of view. And and obviously for all the you know fringe fringe and festival stuff that's going on and won't add that sort of thing as well. Um, so pl- very pleasant weather I think. Not not a lot of rain. Um, so it does look like we're seeing things just clamping down a little bit more on rainfall. Um, ocean temperatures to the northwest have gotten a little bit milder, um, cooler. So uh, yeah, not a lot of rain around. Uh, just some you know some spurts at times, but. Um, uh, yeah, but okay. very pleasant. And, and that in terms of rainfall, uh, the fact that there's not a lot of rain around, that applies for February, March uh, as well? Um, yeah, so there's, there's a little bit of variability in tropical activity. So for February, that, that, you know, that round about the 20th, 24th looks like most active period. Um, gets a bit more active again in the first week of March. Um, so there's a bit of a chance in there. But I think that the uh, Last week, week or so of February, towards the end of February, sorry, March could be um, could be our best chance and next chance of getting some some decent rainfall. Okay, so right down yeah. late March, possible. <laughs> yep. Yeah, interestingly, Darren, on the text line, this text says, "So far in my Southern Hills location, it's been the kindest summer ever for gardening in my four decades here." And Henry at Delamere says, "On the bureau's latest February to April outlook, the below average rainfall has gone from the whole period to just February." And he asks, "Does that now infer that March and April will be average rainfall?" He finds the the way that they're representing it hard to follow. Now, you don't work there, Darren, but I don't know if you're able not, to not cast any <laughs> light anymore. on that. Um, uh, um, I mean, the Bureau just Bureau did start putting in fortnight, weekly and fortnightly breakdowns, um, and and that's and that's really useful, and it's a it's a pretty good thing way to do it. Trouble is, the uh, like the bursts of tropical activity don't actually necessarily um, slot in to those particular periods uh, exactly. So. Um, yeah, that's that can be a little bit tricky. It's it's useful, but it's the the tropical activity does pulse through and not not on a re- exactly regular cycle, so it doesn't actually fit so well with that. But um, well, on so- on that but issue of. Uh, uh weather at this time of the year and and i said to deb listen uh, i think darren's going to say it's going to be pretty mild and pretty good gardening weather Uh, the question i suppose to cement it is are you game enough to put in a late planting of tomatoes um yeah I, i i think so um yeah it's um i think it's probably worth doing um it uh it 
was suggesting like a little bit earlier it might stay a bit warmer right through sort of into April and perhaps even May, but um, it does look like it transitions a bit in mid-April again. So we've got a bit of a step change in mid-March and then again in mid-April. So um, yeah, the... But, but that's yeah, fairly so mild in, in weather. Of autumn, so, yeah, so, so, there's, so there's, a bit of time, there's a bit of time in there still. All right, um, well, just one, one a final issue. You, you're mentioning sort of a, a, a change, particularly in that April period, and uh, there are a lot of people like to uh, think about a break in the season. And I think at the beginning of last month, you suggested we could have an earlier break uh, than uh, normal. What's your thinking now? Yeah, um, so there's, I mean, there's two things going on, John. The... Um, so this this we're seeing in the modelling is that mid-April and there's some support in the you know in terms of what the tropical activity is looking like it'll form up for mid-April sort of increase in in rainfall. So it just look like that sort of mid-April is period to watch out for in terms of rainfall starting to pick up. And and the the other interesting thing that people might just start hearing about is um, the modelling is we've been in El Nino um, this summer. And that's looking like it'll weaken off as we go through autumn. Um, but one to watch for um, through the second half of this year is it's, there's, mo there's modelling indicating that we could flip over into La Nina. Now, that happens at roughly half the time after an El Nino event, statistically. So it's certainly not unusual. Um, and, but that, that means that um, as we go through out of autumn in through winter, we could see increasingly wet conditions developing as, as we go through winter and then um, increasing significantly in spring and 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 have a milder and wet summer after that so um, so it's still early to go too hard with that um, but it's just uh, I'll just flag that with people that that's what we the people start hearing about that um, and you know given the record ocean temperatures we've had sitting underneath um, weather systems through this summer um, that that has some potential to produce some significant rainfall and flooding potentially um, in the second half of this year. So it's certainly one to watch out for as Gee. we go through in coming months. Okay. Well, look, looking at the three-month seasonal outlook, Darren, um, if you're looking at, apart from a couple of heat spikes that you mentioned, sort of around the 20th for February, are we looking at sort of below average temperatures and rainfall for the next three months? Uh, I think temperatures overall for, for Adelaide, <coughs> our stress is for Adelaide, so... The interior is looking like it'll continue quite warm, so um, you know places that have been above average will like very likely to continue. Um, but for Adelaide, yeah, near average temperatures. Um, uh, those occasional spikes, um, occasional little bit of rain. So watch out for that sort of end of um, end of March in particular. Um, but overall, turning it probably a little bit on the dry side for rainfall, but yeah, very pleasant weather through the remainder of summer and into autumn. In contrast to what could have been. From a gardening point of view, I think there'll be quite a large number of gardeners saying, oh, well, I'm pretty happy with that, and they've probably got a little bit of shade cloth standing by <laughs> just in case we do get uh, an occasional little spike into the uh, hot, hot weathers, but it just generally means that uh, it's looking good, and we'll be fascinated to know whether uh, El Nino changes to La Nina. Uh, you've given us a heads up on that, so looking forward to uh, talking to you first Saturday of next month, Darren Ray. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks, Deb. And, uh, yeah, to, uh, I hope everyone enjoys their day out the garden today. <laughs> thanks, <I will> <laughs> Darren. Well, great to catch up with Darren Ray, our um, independent climatologist. And Andy has said, can I listen to Darren's talk on the podcast? Yes, you can. So try and access that later. It will be podcast. Have a listen via the ABC Listen app. If you want to hear it earlier than that, you can hear it online at uh, ABC Radio Adelaide and find the program and you can look it up and Judy from Hectorville has been loving the program this morning John and it's wonderful and I'm loving hearing all those success stories from fruit and vegetable gardeners it's great to hear and it's lovely to uh, know that you're happy to share that information with other listeners now we're going to continue the fruit and vegetable theme because next week our guest is Joe from Joe's Connected Garden because it will be open next weekend for people to take a look at and I would encourage you to go and, and see what uh, that Connected Garden is all about but uh, Joe will be our guest and I'll say until next week good gardening <laughs>